especially this blessing of a life. Thank you for this opportunity for us to come together, fellowshipping with one another in the truth of your strength and power and sovereignty over all things. You are our provider and our God. We worship you together. Amen.
Good morning, everyone. How are you? Do you like these streamers? They're nice, aren't they? Yeah. It's great to have you all here this weekend, and uh, we've got a lot of great things. We're ending our series this week, Kingdom and Culture. Oh, there's my light. I found it. It's over here. Follow me. Uh, and uh, this week was also, uh, we have our big fall festival. It's a blast. It's Friday night, I think. Is that right? Yep, Friday night. It's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you show up. We still need candy, so if you have extra bags of candy, just bring and um, put them in Floyd's office, and uh, he'll eat them all. But no, bring it. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have, uh, um, they always have lots of games, you know, stick your hand in the gooey stuff and try to figure out what it is, so that kind of thing. Make sure you come and head, uh, head on in for that. We'd love to have you. Um, at this time, we're going to dismiss the kids to kids' church, but I want to pray for you guys real quick, okay? So, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the ability to come in here, the, the opportunity to come in here, to learn about you, to worship you, and we just want to bless these children as they head off to kids' church. Fill them with the knowledge of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, for the rest of you, let's stay in worship.
have come. I love that song. I asked them to play that one more time. Not like we're going to stop playing it, but we'll be playing it for a few weeks now because we're actually going to be preaching on that verse uh, today. 
I love that picture. And I hope that it becomes a little bit clearer for us today. I was a hot mess at the 9 o'clock, so we'll see what happens at this one. Um, Man, God has been giving me some serious revelation. And I know that it's not going to be all poured out in a 45-minute sermon. Um, So we'll see what happens to service. But I just want to get right into it because we got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Ushers, if you want to come forward... Um, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. Lord, I thank you that we truly believe that you are moving us forward, God. And we, I pray that you would continue to lead us into the places you would have us to go as a fellowship, as a body, that you give us vision that's united, Lord, and that we would be a force in this city, in this valley, for the sake of your glory and your name being lifted up. Lord, we thank you for every person that's here, for all the people that give to this fellowship, uh, their time and their money and their prayers and everything, Lord, that is offered up just to further what you've called us to do in this place. We pray that you be glorified as we give. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to start off today... That song comes from Hebrews 12. Um, And before we get there, I want to do a quick overview of the book of Hebrews. Just a really quick overview. So this isn't something that's going to be too deep, but I just want to get us a picture of why the author brings us to this place. And all of my pages are all messed up here. One. There we go. I found one. Um, So that's where we're going to be. And then we're going to get to the mountain, or actually the mountains, because there's two of them in Hebrews 12. Um, So the main focus of the book of Hebrews, if you guys want to turn to Hebrews 12 right now, it would be Hebrews 12, 18 is where we're going to be. But the main focus of the book of Hebrews is that... It's showing the superiority of Christ above all things. Christ is superior to all things that had come before. And this is the argument that we hear throughout the whole entire book. The author is making a focus point that for the culture of the day was necessary because there was word going around that, uh, or there was a belief going around that Jesus was the Son of God like uh, he had professed to be. He did raise from the dead. We have all of these testimonies, and, and the Jews are putting their faith into Christ, and yet there, there is some in that, that fold that are putting their faith into Christ that are falling back and holding back to Judaism. So what's happening in the book of Hebrews is that the author is he's making a distinct point that Christ is superior to everything that has come before. You can't hold on to anything else besides him now. Because he is, the only, he is the full revelation of God. And it starts out, the, book, the whole book starts out talking about the superiority of Christ to the angels, despite humanity, the superiority of Christ to Moses, who, handed the Ten Commandments in, uh, who was handed the Ten Commandments in Exodus, to Joshua, who led the people into the Promised Land when Moses led them to the border. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, it was through Jesus that we have been given a new covenant, that is superior to the Old Covenant in every way. The Old Covenant revealed our sin. 
it was an external way, uh, an external law that could never fix an internal issue. Our hearts were broken. They cannot be fixed from the outside. And so Jesus comes as our high priest. These are the arguments made in Hebrews. He is perfect. He offers a perfect sacrifice in the perfect sanctuary and stands as a perfect mediator of a new covenant that is perfect and eternal. The everlasting covenant that God promises people in Jeremiah 31. This is why we take communion. This is why we're going to take it today because Jesus said to his disciples as he sat in the upper room the night before his death, this is my blood that establishes a new covenant. And this is what we remember as a church, that not only did Christ shed his body for us and his, his, his flesh was ripped and he was killed and his body was broken, but that he gave his blood to establish this new covenant. And so the author of Hebrews brings us there. Jesus made the impossible possible. We find forgiveness through him. We find life through him. We find entrance into the presence of God through him, which is the point the author of Hebrews makes in 4.16. He says, because of Christ, we may approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Like a child running into the arms of a father, that we would approach God's grace, this holy, untouchable to this point place has now been opened to us because of, God, or because of Christ. We may have confidence to receive mercy. And then the author goes from the superiority of Christ, the absolute superiority to everything that had come before, and he moves into this call, a call into action. Hebrews 10, he focuses on five main points. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our hope. Let us spur one another towards love and good deeds. Let us not forsake meeting together. That's why we meet as a church. Let us encourage one another. Let us walk by faith. Hebrews 11. For faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. By faith we believe in God, and by faith we are saved through Christ, and by faith we are called to live. This Christianity that we come to is not a set of rules, it is a life lived out in the belief of Christ. It is a walking out, a sanctification. We've talked about this. And Hebrews eleven six says that if any of us are going to draw near to God, we must believe that He exists. Which might seem evident, obviously, but how many of us today can honestly say that every single day we wake up with the reality that God is on his throne, that I am in his kingdom, and everything I do in this day will be dictated by his reign in my life. That is a heavy thing to think about. And the author knows this. He says, if we're going to draw near to God, you say you want to have a relationship with God, let's start on uh, point one. Does he exist to you? Or is he just a theology? You must believe he exists. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I love that point, but I, I also love C.S. Lewis's argument to that point because he didn't see that to be true. C.S. Lewis argued this point by Tozer when he said, What comes to God's mind when he thinks about us is the most important thing about us. And I think both of those together find their place, though, because what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us in light of the fact of do we believe that when we come to God, we're coming to a God who's thinking about us what he does. 
Or is he this foreign deity that just lives in heaven and doesn't have any connection to who we are? Because we've not only been called to know what God thinks about us, but to put our belief that God thinks what he does about us and live in accordance. They both have solid points. Hope it didn't leave anybody there. And we see this point made throughout Hebrews. This is a point made throughout the whole book. God has been true to his promise. To borrow the words from 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God culminate themselves. The climax is found in Christ. You have been set free. Start living in that truth. We cannot marginalize our faith. We can try. We do it every single day. I do it every single day. But faith does not, that does not hope. Faith does, that does not believe. Faith does, that does not move, on, move and hold on to Christ is dead. And without faith, without Christ, we will be dead forever. And this leads us to Hebrews 12. The author is making this point. Christ is superior. You need to understand the worth that we're dealing with when we're talking about Christ. You need to put your faith in Him. His reality causes us to move into action. And He encourages us and He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Twelve chapters outlining the supremacy of Christ, the need to put our trust into him, and the call of action. Do we believe this? How do our lives reflect the truth that God reigns and that Christ has freed us from ourselves, that he is not only superior to all things past, present, future, but he is superior to our own desires. He is superior, that he has saved us from ourselves and he has called us into new life. This is what the writer of Hebrews invites us to wrestle through over and over and over. Christ is has come, the Messiah has come, our Redeemer has come. He is superior to everything that has come. We can have full confidence in Him. He is the perfect high priest who gives all people ready access to God. And at the end of chapter 12, after all the exhortations, after all the encouragements and warnings, the author brings us to two mountains. And listen to what he says. Hebrews twelve eighteen. For you have not come to what may be touched... A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we come to two mountains. 
The first is a description of Mount Sinai where God's presence came to the earth for the first time after the fall. We've looked at this picture as a church. Exodus 19, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 4. It's an amazing picture, mind-numbing picture of holiness and awe. And this second mountain speaks of a spiritual city. This heavenly Jerusalem where God's presence resides. Sinai and Zion. What an image. There's a comparison here. And Josh is going to be coming up and to share his thoughts on this in a little bit. But I want to look at the context for a minute. Because how does this passage begin? It says, for you have not come to what can be touched. You have not come to what can be touched. But that first word is what? It's for. For in this passage shows us that this passage is tied to what came prior. It shows us intensification or, or an explanation of an argument or point above. So what did the author say just prior to this passage? If you want to go with me to verse 14. This is right above these two mountains. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest child. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. What a weighty passage. Here the author is encouraging and warning the readers to work out your faith. Walk out your salvation. There's a lot here. And the consequences, he says, for Esau, who sold the birthright for the pot of stew. There were weighty consequences. And so in the middle of all of this, the author in Hebrews brings us all the way back to Genesis 25 and reminds us of Esau. And he says, don't be like him. Don't be like him. And then he leads us to, for you have come to a mountain that cannot be touched. Do you see that? He connects the mountains with Esau. Don't be like Esau, for you haven't come to what can be touched. You haven't come to Sinai. You've come to Zion. So, if that's confusing enough, let's start to unpack it. Go to Genesis 25, 29 through 34. It's in your bulletin, if you have that. We're going to do an overview of the story of Jacob and Esau really quick. We're going to look at why he's contrasting this story with these mountains. Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom literally translates red. The whole entire nation of Edom was given their name because Esau saw red stew. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said to him, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his merry way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now in ancient times, the birthright was an incredibly important and sacred thing. It belonged to the firstborn. The family name and the titles were passed along through the oldest son. He would also receive a chief portion of the inheritance, but it was more than just a title of physical assets of a family. It was a spiritual position. In the case of Esau and Jacob, these were the sons of Isaac, who was the the son of Abraham. Why is this important? Because it was through this family that God promised to bless all the nations, and ultimately it was through this family that the Messiah would come. And how would the Messiah come? Who would he come through? He would come through the one who held the birthright. Esau was the firstborn, and the birthright was his. And he sells it away for a bowl of soup. Esau feels exhausted, probably, from working. He sees the stew. It looks awesome. Apparently, Jacob should be a master chef. Um, I love that show. He smells it. His mouth is watering. His stomach is empty. And he literally tells Jacob, if I don't have some of your soup, brother, I'm going to die. You talk about melodramatic. (laughs) And so his younger brother, Jacob, says, give me your birthright and you can have some soup. So what is this a transaction of? In a real way, it's a transaction of senses. He can see the red soup. He can smell the aroma of the soup. He can almost taste in his mouth. He can feel that need within him, that craving, like I'm exhausted. I need to be satisfied. And that which can be held, that which can be consumed, surpasses the value of that which can be inherited in a moment. And think what you want about Jacob, but this was a boy who sees the value of something that he could not touch. He sees the value of God's blessing and he seeks it out. And as much as Esau desired the soup, Jacob's heart desired the blessing of God, the inheritance of God. He didn't force Esau to sell it, he just revealed what e- where Esau's heart already was. What good is a birthright to me if I'm about to die? Didn't matter to him. So he sells his birthright, and in doing so, he sells away being part, being the one in whom all the nations would be blessed. Being the one who would carry the lineage of the Messiah. Being the one who would gain the chief portion of family inheritance for a bowl of soup. And I think it's easy for us to look at Esau with disdain and say, What were you thinking? You're a freaking fool. But man, when I look at his decisions and I look at my own. I look a lot like Esau. See, it seems all too easy to satisfy our lives with the things of this world, the things that I can hold, the the things I crave and I can fulfill my senses with in exchange for the inheritance of God. 
I don't think I'm alone in this. We look at the promises of God. We frame them. We literally put them in picture frames and we put them on our walls. They're the art in our houses. We read about the worth of knowing Christ. We have this understanding to one degree or another that we are eternal beings and this is just temporary. That we've entered into this eternal kingdom through Christ's blood. At least that's what we say we believe. We have free access to approach the throne of grace and we have this eternal inheritance waiting for us. But where is the value? Like how does that show in the way that we make decisions? This is the thing I've been wrestling with this week. It's just like, man, God. If I'm going to come into your presence, I must believe that you exist. If I believe that you exist, it changes everything about my life. Because I haven't been brought into redemption to satisfy myself with which, with which is temporal. And I, I don't think it's just the world. I think as Christians... You know, it's amazing to me that we have this mentality, I'm speaking to myself, where we have this understanding of eternity, right? And yet, we're such temporal beings when it comes to what we pursue. We justify it too. I mean, I just want to get married before I die, and I want to have kids before I die, and I want to see New Zealand before I die. And I want to record a CD before I die. And we have this whole list of our earthly desires and our flesh trying to be fulfilled because God knows we need to fulfill our senses, right? That's humanity. And um, the measure of our life is weighed by death. Do you guys feel that? The choices that we make now, the choices I make now, is not based on the fact that I'm going to live forever. It's based on the fact that I believe I need to be fulfilled before I die. And yet, we say we believe in eternity. We say we believe that God has called us to lay down our lives for the sake of Him being seen in this world. And we're supposed to be storing up our treasures in the world to come, which is forever. But how do our lives reflect that truth? The eternal versus the temporal. It is not only the world that craves a bowl of soup. Us as the church, we do a really good job at it. And we justify it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Before I go any farther, I want to look at a contrast between these two mountains, and I want to invite my good friend, Josh Labuda, to do that for us. Hello. 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 <laughs> so we've been singing a song uh, lately 
called a Mount Zion. I don't know if you noticed. Um, and I came across to how I come across most of the songs that we end up singing um, through suggestions by you guys and also through YouTube. And um, most of the deciding factors of the songs that I enjoy just in general is how they make me feel emotionally. Um, whether through musicality or lyricism, the emotion drives me to say, this is it, this is something <clears throat> I can hold on to, and this is something I would love to sing, especially on, on Sunday. Um, but uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we had the last class of the history of the church, Joshua Tucker, um, he had it here, and um, Rocking New York, you guys were there, and Luis was there, and a bunch of brave souls um, were there, and he... He was supremely used by God to expose the assumptions and liberties that I've taken with the meaning and the purpose of the Bible. And I take a lot of liberties with the Bible as far as its meaning, and a lot of them aren't true. And so I learned a lot from that, specifically um, when it came to what we sing on Sunday. And um, so it was two weeks ago, I think it was a Monday, I was at the church working on worship service, and um, I, w I was going over this song, and I was like, what the heck is Zion? I mean, it sounds cool. I mean, it's, it's in the Bible. It's biblical. I've read it. I've passed by it a couple times on my way through, you know, and um, it makes me feel a sense of comfort, and it makes me feel a sense of victory, and it makes me feel, um, it's, a, it's a mountain. It's this giant, comforting, strong thing, and I really just Felt it emotionally, but I didn't understand it. And so um, I was drawn to research and read the Bible <laughs> and about where that came from. And uh, that brought me to Hebrews 12, 22, and, and which is the, the beginning chorus of the song. We are come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, having Jerusalem. And um, Josh's class taught me that um, we should always understand the context of it. So as Eric talked about, I went back a few verses, and we have the verse, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, and we have not come to darkness and gloom and a storm. And um, at first I thought, like, what the heck is this mountain? Is this an evil mountain, a death mountain, a volcano? Um, but if you go back to Exodus, it actually tells you um, a very similar story. Um, Exodus 19.16 says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. Sound familiar? And this mount they had come to, Mount Sinai, was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. So the writer in Hebrews is saying, We have not come to the stormy, gloomy mountain. We have not come to Sinai. Where have we come? We have come to Mount Zion. We have not come to death, piercing darts, thousand furnaces, heat. We have come to Mount Zion. And what the writer is doing, he's contrasting. He's saying, not Sinai, but Zion. Like, not wet, it's dry. Not death, it's life. Not fear, it's joy. And I think this is the Holy Spirit drew me to understand is that Mount Sinai represents the law. It represents the powerful, necessary, impossible, unreachable, death-inducing law, which has not now been cast away. It has not been done away with, but it has been 
fulfilled by whom, in whom, and through whom it's been done through Jesus. And this brings us to Mount Zion. We have, not come, we have now come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heaven Jerusalem, and we continue into the innumerable company of angels, to the great assembly of the church of, of the firstborn, Jesus, which are written in the heavens, and to God, the judge of all. We have come to the city of God and to God. We have come to God now, here among us. We have come by the revelation of God in Christ, by faith in that revelation, and the will God puts on our hearts, like in Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. The scene described in these verses needs to be the platform that I lived my entire life. We may say, like in Psalms 27.4, we, we can dwell in the house of the Lord to behold his beauty and to acquire into his temple now darkened by no dread, and not disturbed by the consciousness of unforgiven sin. So church, let us knit ourselves to him by the heartfelt acceptance of the good news of his loving closeness, the full unhindered access to God which we have, which Christ has brought us, living as if we have left this earth and the cares at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we have come to Mount Zion. Amen. Thanks, ma'am. In the book of Hebrews, the reason why the author is pressing this point between these two mountains contextually for the people, I mean, historically, we have to realize that when Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, he's not coming to an open-armed group of Jews. They're like, high five, you're the king, we'll all submit to you. That's not what happened. Because Judaism at this point in history had turned into its own empire, its own echelon, and it was looking for somebody who would be raised up as a king, riding on a really cool horse, come into town and overthrow Rome. Because they wanted an earthly kingdom. That's what they were looking for. And even people who were coming into the faith of Christ, who were Jews, they were coming to this faith and they're like, yeah, but for 1,500 years, this is all we've held. This reality of God, this theophany of God at Sinai, this reality that He has come, He gave us this law. It's a physical, I can hold it in my hands. The temple, the worship, the sacrifices. I mean, is Christ really sufficient? And religion to them became their bowl of soup. It became the thing that they knew they held and that they found their comfort in. It's like, yeah, I don't know. And he's saying, look, look, look. You haven't come to what you can touch. What God is establishing is beyond your senses and your ability to grasp. It's so important that we get this. And this is the thing that's just been boggling my mind this week is... Truly, I feel, as Christians, we have been called to live in a faith that we cannot even touch. Like, it goes beyond us. He's like, you haven't come to a physical mountain. Your faith is the assurance of what you don't see. Everything right now that you're going through is leading us to this reality that you cannot know, but you live in at this moment. It's like the biggest paradox. So how do we do it? 
How do I live for the eternal now as a temporal being? How do I know the inheritance is mine? How do I, am I, am I assured of it? And I live in such a way that my reality is eternity and my end, the end gauge in which I live my life is not the death on this earth. And I think that's a spirit. In, first, or in Ephesians 1.11 it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of His will, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to, pr- may be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him... This is the key. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we we acquire possession of it. We do not physically hold it. Zion is not something that we can physically hold like a bowl of stew and be like, oh, this is so yummy. So how do we, we live in it? It's through a spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 1, it says the Spirit reveals to us the heart of God. It is written, what no eye has seen, no, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God reveals to us through His Spirit. What you cannot know, what you have never seen, what you will never be able to hold, is yours. How? They're revealed to us through a spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us. We might understand what has been given that we cannot touch. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All right. I might sound like I'm contradicting myself a lot, but let me give you a worldview or a a real-life view of what that looks like for us. At least as far as I've been wrestling in my own spirit what it looks like. The presence of God is not felt the same as temptations or fleeting pleasures. God will not reveal himself to you like your desire for sin does. I think one of the reasons we struggle with grasping the reality of God is because we're trying to find him with everything that we can feel and smell and see in this world. We peg God's revelation on the physical And so our revelation of him ends with the physical. God has blessed me with my job. Amen. It shows me my provision. God has done this. And we tie him to these physical things. And then we get to this point where we feel like there's this wall. Like, God, I don't know how to break through anymore. I mean, I I believe that you're real. But it just feels like all of this stuff that I'm defining you by isn't enough for me to grab hold and push and, and actually walk out this faith. It's terrifying. So what do I do? We want to hold God like a bowl of soup. 
and he doesn't work like that. We have not come to a mountain that could be touched. Remember Hebrews 11, faith leads us to the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists first. And that he rewards those who seek him. Now this is where I think this plays out. I think in the word of God, the reason he calls us to pour out our lives is because we need to, to find him. We will never find God in the cushiness of our own pursuits because he is beyond our pursuits. Let me tell you, man, I mean, you guys know this. Me and Lauren, we have four boys right now, and it is exhausting. I mean, if you would tell me, hey, what do you think you'd be doing with your life? I would not have been like, I want four boys, three, four, five, and six, who all compete with each other and wake up at six like they're on Red Bull highs (laughs) and pee all over my house. But this is truly, like, grasp this, please, just in my testimony. Because the reality of who God is has never been more clear. The reality of who God is has never been more clear than when I go beyond myself for the sake of putting my hope in eternity. God, take my life now. If you want me to adopt 30 kids, I don't care. If I never pick up my guitar again, I don't care. If I never have another night of sleep, a full night of sleep, God forbid, I don't care because this is a vapor. James says this life is a vapor. We put so much weight before death. It's like, man, I want to do all this stuff, you know? I was a musician my whole entire life. My greatest dream is still, my personal is to record an album. I have songs from 10 years ago that are almost done being recorded. And in June, I was like, man, I finally have time to record music. And then on the last week of June, we, adopt, or we got the three boys. And the studio just went, boom, gone. And if you were asking me my whole entire life, who are you? I'm a musician. That's what I do. That's who I am. Two weeks ago, this was, this was eye-opening for me. Two weeks ago... Lauren is doing homeschool with our boy Zephyr, who's six, and they're talking about music, and she gets to the point where she's like, do we have any musicians in the family? And he thinks about it, and he looks at her and he says, no. (laughs) And she told me that, and I was just like, oh my gosh, when did that happen? (laughs) Like, did somebody not, did I miss something? But man, I'll tell you what, for years, my friends can attest to this, I struggled with whether or not music for myself was an idol. And I was like, God, I don't know if I should lay it down, I should pick it up, I'm a worship leader, I mean, all these things, blah, 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 blah. And when I finally just stopped focusing on the soup and started moving in the reality of the kingdom, that God has work to be done here. There is a race to be ran, and he's called all of us to be a part of it with the testimony of every single believer, the living stones built in the wall before us. Those things don't matter anymore. What if I never 
what if you never? Will all of the worth in your life evaporate? Or do you truly understand that you have inherited the kingdom of eternity? That's a weighty thought, isn't it? This is my prayer. And it is hard. Because every single day we wake up to a world, a culture bombarded to satisfy our senses, to fulfill our immediate pleasures, and we fall for the temporary satisfactions as opposed to looking to the eternal inheritance. We sow into the things we have now, and we say, these are good things. Yeah, but even Sinai was a shadow. The people of God received the law at Sinai. They received the fullest revelation they'd ever have at Sinai, but Sinai was not the point. And when Christ came to the scene, he said, Sinai is keeping you from me. If you hold yourself under the law, you are condemned under the law. You need to come to the revelation of who I am. So good things can steal us away from inheriting and walking in the fullness of God. Even the revelations of God. I hope you guys are getting this. Because we've been on this conversation of kingdom and culture, kingdom and culture, one or the other, one or the other. And to me, it just goes to the point, soup or eternity? What has more value? And how do our lives reflect it? I'm not, I'm not saying that every single person in this room should adopt children, but I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I think all of us should pour ourselves out to the point where we need the assurance of God's spirit within us holding us. And if we didn't have it, we would die. Because in that moment, we are experiencing our inheritance now. If my life is lived out to where I'm satisfying every single thing about me, how will I ever know the revelation in which God has given me through his son? He has called me to pour myself out, not only for his glory in this world, but so that I can hold on to the assurance of his inheritance through his spirit in me. Sustaining me. Giving me peace. Giving me wisdom. Giving me direction in the midst of chaos. Giving me joy when my boys poop down the wall. Giving me something that goes beyond Eric's physical Senses. It's like, this isn't me, God. This is you. You are so real. Nobody can tell me God's not real. Why? Because I have placed myself in a position that if he wasn't, I would be exhausted and insane. And I have peace. The new covenant is ours, church. And we're going to stand right now and receive it together. If you guys want to come up for new, uh, communion... If you are a believer, this is a moment in our faith where we stand together and remember what Christ has done, that he is superior to everything that has come prior. He is superior to everything that we hold present, and he is superior to anything that we could ever hold future. Through his body broken for us, we have been brought into life, the abundance of life. And when he was in 
the room the night before his death with the disciples, he picked up a cup and he changed the script on the Passover. No longer were they looking back to Exodus and Sinai because he was going to start something new. And he said, in this blood, I establish a new covenant with you. And this is the covenant we read in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that we hold to. This is Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me themselves. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We have been offered redemption, forgiveness. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. We have been offered being lifted from our shame and seated into a place of honor. Do we value that? Do our lives reflect it? Are we pouring out for eternity? Or are we satisfying ourselves with the temporal? How bad do we want to know God? Can you imagine, church, if all of us got this? If all of us said, yes, we're going to stand and pour our lives out for the sake of this city. What a testimony. Starts with one person making one decision to live different. together we're all running let's not stop in the middle of the Olympic race to eat stew we have a banquet table awaiting us in eternity if you guys want to stand I love doing communion together in the first century church they would meet in a house usually in a courtyard, from the poorest to the richest. And they were united as one. Didn't matter the race. Didn't matter anything. Your age, one. And they would stand. And the testimony of the gospel would be seen in the fact that all of us share the common truth that God has saved us from hell. And we have put our trust and his promises. We take this blood, this cup, which symbolizes your blood, and we remember the new covenant that you gave us, Jesus. And this body that was broken for us, a symbol that what has been defeated no longer reigns. Jesus walked out of the tomb. They didn't open the stone to see if he was in there. They opened the stone to see the power that he was gone. 
He was gone. He defeated death. He walked out of the grave. It had no hold on him. And it has no hold on us because we are in him. If you have kids, if you want to pick them up, that'd be great because then my wife won't yell at me later. Um, But we're going to end by singing a song, Mount Zion. I want you to think about what you're singing. And have an awesome, blessed week.
You guys have a blessed week. If you have any questions or need any prayers, you can here. I'd love to talk to you. Hey, I just remembered that we have a...